morning. The passage this morning is Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. If you have a house Bible, that's on page 474. Again, it's Matthew 7, 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to try this mic and uh, see what happens. If it cuts in and out, we'll change here, Justin. So uh, good morning again. And uh, today we are wrapping up our series, a Sermon on the Mount. Before we to, um, yeah, let me change it now before we get into it and I'm distracted. Yes, awesome. Okay, so before we get into the passage today, I want to start us off with an announcement. Um, Before I give the announcement, though, uh, everyone that is a volunteer here on a Sunday morning, so you, you set up you are on facility team, you work in uh, children's, um, and um, what am I missing? Band? How can I miss band? Um, Hospitality? I thought I said that. How many do we have? Stand to your feet, please. We want to honor you. If anyone here is serving at all, at any capacity on one of those teams, stand to your feet. Let's give them a round of applause, guys. Listen, I don't there's really no, thank you guys, you can sit down. <laughs> Stand the whole time I'm preaching. Um, so here's the deal. <laughs> um, guys, I am so grateful for all the countless hours that you have put into the ministry here at downtown. I know that much of that goes unnoticed. I know that uh, what you do is not always appreciated. I want you to know, though, that it is not unnoticed um, by me or Ryan, Pastor Ryan. Um, 
But the things that are missed, it certainly is not, does not go unnoticed with God. And I wanted to commend you for your work. I wanna also encourage you to keep going, keep working hard, not unto man, but unto the Lord. For he is the one whom we do all our ministry efforts towards. Now, I also know in ministry, in any capacity, but especially with a church our size, uh, it can be really hard. And, the, and the, the work can seem just infinite and endless. And just like, when is this going to end? When, when can I take a breath? And although we often want to um, feel like we're this guy and make it seem as though like this is us, that we're doing all things unto the glory of God and with great joy and with great emphasis, this is often in reality what we feel like. I love babies falling asleep. Like, if this is what, if we were allowed to socially, um, I think this is what we would do, right? We would just find a corner, find a shelf, and just knock out if we had that kind of balance. Uh, hold on, I got one more. The, the fact of the matter is, like, this is often what we feel like. We want to be this emblem, this symbol in life of somebody who just has all capacity and all infinite storage of energy and passion, but we don't, right? And compound our ministry with just reality, with just the things in life that happen around us. Man, we are tired. I mean, uh, even this morning I've had, I think I counted because I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I say it all the time myself, but I counted. The amount of people I said hello today, how was your week? And it was busy, busy. And I say it too, because it's just, it's reality. It's just busy. And I know that even in ministry, like our, this can just seem just hard and we just can't take a breath sometimes. So because of this, here's the announcement, um, is that we are going to enter into a Sabbath rest as a church. So Advent is upon us. Next Sunday is uh, December 1st, and we begin in the season of Advent. Advent is a time for us to slow down. It's actually purposefully there so that we slow down. We take time to reflect. We take time to anticipate and to long. We take time to remember what Jesus did in taking on flesh, the incarnation of Christ in his first coming, and allow that to propel us into into longing for Christ's second advent, his second coming. And this takes intentionality. Sabbath is a time that God has given us so that, because life doesn't stop, and so we must intentionally stop. So he's given us a command to say, stop and rest. Rest. Now, Sabbath is not simply just taking time off. That's taking time off. That's vacation. Sabbath is entering into what I, three things, and we'll talk about these things later on, but assess, devote, and delight. Assess, devote, and delight. And we'll explain that a little bit later in the, in the, the back half of our, our sermon today. Um, but I want to uh, just kind of first describe what the next 
um, six weeks are going to look like for us as church because we've never done this before. And so you come in here next week, things are going to look a little different. It's going to feel a little different. We're giving all the volunteers time off. So during these six weeks, we're not going to have a hospitality crew greeting you in the front door. There may, um, we're working with Espanol. Maybe there'll be somebody there to greet you from Espanol, but there may not be. So that means we all have to work together to greet each other. We can do that, I think, right? There won't be a setup team. Um, so the staff, we're going to do whatever we can do in 30 minutes in the morning. That's what we're going to have set up in here. So things are going to look a little bit different. It's going to feel a little bit different. Um, our uh, kids is going to be stripped down a little bit. We will have uh, preschool available so you can drop off your young kids. But working through that and how to do that so that we're not um, asking a lot from volunteers from that end. And we will continue to have worship, but that will be stripped down as well. And so... Things are going to look a little different, but we're doing it intentionally, purposefully, because of two things. Those of you who are serving, we want you to enter into a rest intentionally, not take time off from Sundays, right? But enter into a rest to assess, to devote, and to delight. Again, we're going to talk about that more. And we're going to give you practical ways through this six weeks on how to do that and do it well. The other reason is we want, as leadership, we want to be able to assess. We want to be able to evaluate where we're at as a ministry, as a church, and the culture that we're creating around serving. And so we're going to take time to do that even in uh, our Sabbath here. So that's going to be happening next week, Sunday. It's just a heads up. Um, and again, this is a, an intentional time that we, we want to just be able to say in action uh, that we care about you more than what you do. We care about who you are more than what you do. God cares about you, more, who you are, more than what you do for him. And we need to remember that. And Sabbath allows us to do that. Cool? If cool, say cool. Cool. All right. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this here. God, we're just so grateful for another morning. God, I pray that this next season of Advent and Sabbath would be a time that is glorifying to your name, that you are honored in it, oh God, that you would allow each of us on an individual level with our families, with our friends, to experience your rest that you have for us, that we would learn in a greater way what it means to Submit ourselves to you, not to our schedules. Father, I pray that this morning as we, um, we look in your word, God, that you would bring to light what you want to speak. This is your word. These are your words, Christ. This is your church, your people. I am your servant. And God, we submit all things to you. So God, speak. And as you speak, May we obey. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so jumping in today to the text. Um, we hate having to make a choice. Now, some of us may be better at making choices than others, but when we are forced, when our hand is forced to make a choice, we resent that. We push back against that. Don't tell me I have to make a choice, Right? Nearly every survey has the option of not sure or I don't know, right? Every Facebook event that you're going to put out has a maybe option. Everybody hates that. What does that mean, maybe? Just make up your mind. Everyone has the opportunity to choose no party affiliation or independent as a registered voter. 
we don't like to be able to be forced to make a decision. And then top that off, compound that with the fact that that's just kind of a American cultural thing, I think, but compound that with just reality that just not all of life is black and white and simply binary. However, Christ, Jesus, he gives us two options today. And he does not allow us to have the luxury which appeals so nicely to our senses. He demands a choice. I would think of Joshua, the story of Joshua, and uh, he's with the Israelites. And after they've conquered the land of Canaan, the, Lord, the land that God had given them, and he's standing there and he's standing from, he's renewing the covenant with God's people. And he says these words, but if it doesn't please you to worship Yahweh, choose for yourself today the one you will worship. The gods your fathers worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. As for me and my family, we will worship Yahweh. Jesus gives us no middle ground. God gives us no middle ground in choosing. You're either in or you're out. And he gives three analogies here this morning, two ways, two trees, and two builders. Essentially, he's saying this, is that we are always worshiping something. And he boils it down to two things. You're either worshiping me or you're not. And he gives us three analogies to show this. Now, let us understand the context here of what Jesus is saying or who he's speaking to, the setting. So he's speaking to three groups of people. Remember that when in the very beginning, Jesus went up on a high place and he began to address the crowd. The crowd was his disciples. Um, and the, it was also those crowd that was seeking to, to know what he was about, like who is this guy, um, to learn more about Jesus. They weren't followers of him. And the third group were um, the scribes and the Pharisees. So in our context, we can, in the 21st century, we could say uh, the disciple of Christ is the Christian. The, um, those, the crowd is, is a seeker. Those seeking to know God, they're maybe not a Christian. Maybe you're here today and you don't profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you're here and you're seeking. Jesus has something to say to you as he does to the disciple. He also has something to say to the teacher. And in definition today, I would refer to this as a pastor, uh, any leader, community group leader, ministry leader, um, pastor dad, or a mother teaching your children or others about Christ from the word of God. You could fall into this category as well. C.S. Lewis has this quote. He says, Christianity, I have this on the screen, sorry, I'm not following my slides. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let me first address the seeker this morning. So maybe you're here today and you say, I'm, I don't believe in God, right? So I'm a secular humanist. I, uh, what's true for me is what can be empirically proven in science and in nature. This is what I believe. And since we cannot empirically prove God, I do not adhere to such a belief. I would say that this is probably the predominant belief of our culture today. 
And it is um, that compounded with relativism that there is no absolute truth, that there is um, all roads lead to the same place. So whether you follow Jesus or Krishna or Buddha, that all the roads are going the same direction, they're all leading to the same place, heaven. Now, I want to challenge this for a moment here because in, if, you, if you have this, if you believe this way or you know somebody believes this way um, and you wonder, like, how do, I, how do I approach this topic with them? Well, I want to submit that this in and of itself is a belief system. The, and the person who says that all roads lead to the same place has to, in that statement, ask the person or themselves to denounce parts of the teaching of those followers, whether it be Jesus, Krishna, or Buddha. Because an honest approach, an honest study to any of the religions, you will see that they are not teaching the same thing. There are similarities, but they're not the same message. And so you must insist that we denounce certain parts of teaching, and in doing so, be dishonest about what we believe. And so, not only are you insisting upon this, but in, in insisting that we denounce certain parts or teaching of Jesus, Buddha, or Krishna, then you are then saying that your belief system is actually a higher or superior belief system to any of those. And then, therefore, saying that a narrow-minded Christian or, or in, in pointing out a narrow-minded Christian, you're actually saying, I am myself am narrow-minded. And I am myself am being um, the one who is closed off. And in reality, in actuality, being what Jesus is being here. Where he is saying there's two ways. There's two thoughts here. Two ways to, to go. Either it's through me or it's through the world. D.A. Carson says this, nothing could be more calamitous than to meditate long and hard on the Sermon on the Mount than to resolve to improve a little. This is to all of us today, whether we're here seeking, whether we're here as a believer, or whether we're here as a teacher, nothing could be worse than for us to come today and just resolve to just do a little better. So I want us to pause and reflect before we go into the passage here and understand this, that remember that Jesus in this whole beginning of his sermon was the first thing he says. What does he start off with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if we look ahead, the apostle Paul and his teaching, we see that he is absolute in arguing that salvation is a free gift of God by faith, by grace through faith. And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. And I'm just gonna ask you to kind of uh, bookmark it there and because we're gonna refer back to this passage a number of times in the sermon today. But to kind of set the stage here and remembering that in Jesus' call to action and what Jesus is asking us to do to enter by the narrow gate, we have to understand the whole picture here. 
And we have to remember that none of this is because we want to be better or do better or become better, um, but it is by the Spirit's enabling. And so what does Paul say in verse eight? He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. We could argue from this text that works are both the goal and the test of our salvation. That works are both the goal and the test of our salvation. And we combine it with the truth that this is a free gift. Your salvation is a free gift. So what is Paul meaning here? So we're gonna get into it more now. So let's jump into verse 13, back in Matthew 7. If you would turn back there with me. Matthew 7, verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are many few. Enter, he says. This is the call to action. Enter. According to Jesus, everyone is entering. You're either entering the narrow gate or the wide gate. We could also refer to entering as worshiping. You're worshiping one of two things, Jesus or something else. Entry into the narrow gate is this spiritual brokenness. It is poverty of spirit. It is being poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in this setting here where Christ has not gone to the cross yet, he's speaking to the crowd, this pre-passion setting, this is obviously influencing on what Jesus says at the moment to the crowd, but the essence is the same all throughout. And it is this, realize your need. Realize your need. And then he says, not enter, but specifically enter the narrow gate. This word narrow is literal. It's, it's literally narrow. So symbolizing this, that you cannot bring everything with you. You cannot bring everything with you. You cannot bring your sin, whatever selfish ambition you might have. Jesus even at one point says, he who does not leave father and mother and brother and sister to follow me is not fit. This is a, a narrow passage that Jesus is calling us into. It's also ob obscure. Few find it. Meaning you may miss it. You may miss the gate. It's small and obscure. Comparatively, the other gate is wide. It is wide. It's simple to find. Apparently, there's no limit to the luggage that you can bring along with you through this passage. You can bring all your sin, all your self-righteousness, self all your pride. It is large. It is easy to find. You won't miss it. And the way beyond this wide gate is easy, he says. It's the way of the world. It's whatever you wish to do, do so. Whatever makes you happy, do that. Whatever way you want to follow, go down there. It will lead you to the same place. The things of the world 
are easy to do. John Stott says this, he says, these things referring to the things of the world, these things do not have to be learned or cultivated. Effort is needed to resist them. No effort is required to practice them. There's no effort in, in practicing our sins, right? And the things that we just want to do is what I mean. Let's just boil it down to what, I'm, what we're really saying. The things that we want to do, what, what makes our flesh most happy, those things aren't hard to practice. Those things are easy to practice. And so Jesus says, the way beyond the narrow gate is hard. The word hard here, he, he, he references in verse 14, the gate is narrow. He says narrow again, but then he adds, and the way is hard. And when in the Greek, the word hard actually changes the meaning of the word narrow here. And what we see is that it's no longer literal narrow. What he's now giving a, um, an image for is actually constriction and being pressed and even persecuted. This is the way beyond the narrow gate. Here's a fact, guys. God's revealed truth and his goodness imposes limitations on you. Let me say, whoa. I don't like that. God's revealed truth and his goodness to you imposes limitations upon you. Now, think about this. The way is hard because poverty of sin or poverty of spirit, mourning sin is hard. Prayer is hard. Meekness is hard. Self-denial is hard. We, we, he pulls no punches on that. But the difference here is that we should not understand limitation as oppression. So this week, my... Uh, son had a field trip. My uh, wife went with him. And so I took advantage of the time and took my daughter um, out for the afternoon. And when kids are, when, when your kids are my age, they, uh, it's really easy to make them happy. You don't really have to spend a lot of money or do anything too creative. So we decided, um, I said, I said, darling, I said, baby, do you want, do you want to go on a train? And her eyes just lit up and she's like, yes. And like a train. Yes. And so I took her down to the sun rail and um, right at Advent Health. And when uh, we went like just up to Winter Park, cost me like $3. And um, we actually do this um, fairly often and it's, and it's great. It's easy. Do it. Um, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, it might be fun too. I don't know. Um, and so we get onto, you know, the, <clears throat> the area where you're waiting for the train at the station and we buy our ticket. And the first thing you notice is next to the track is this big old yellow line. And it's probably like 12, 14 inches thick, you know? And then in front of the line, it says, do not cross yellow line. And you know why. You know why that line is there. And it's because if you go across the yellow line, uh, you could get hit by a train, right? And if you have kids, you're even more aware of this and you're just kind of on edge when that train's coming in and it's like barreling down and they just hit the brakes like at the last second. And <clears throat> there is no moment in time that I ever think that that line is oppressive to me. And I would call the city or I'd call Sunrail and be like, that line should not be there. 
You are oppressing me with that limitation. I want to go beyond the line. And be like, okay, fine. It's just a warning. Like, <laughs> go beyond the line, get hit by a train. It's the same thing when we come to God and we realize that his truth for us and his goodness that actually imposes limitations on us is not oppressive. We do not serve an oppressive God. In fact, we serve a deliverer. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. We do not serve an oppressive God, church. He is a delivering God. Carson, D.A. Carson, he has this, um, he has this picture that he uses and a picture of a cone. And in reference to this narrow gate, we can kind of picture it this way that the gate is narrow like a cone and the entry is very small, it's very constrictive and you can't bring much into there. But we should not see that the road beyond it being constrictive and being limiting towards us is for our oppression, but it is wide and immense as the oceans are wide and immense and as deep as the oceans are deep and as high as the skies are high, so is the grace of our God. And so when we enter in through the narrow gate onto this road that is hard, guys, the grace of God is limitless. And we find expanse and we find freedom in Christ, not oppression. It is important to note that this is not only hard, but it is impossible. It's impossible apart from the spirit of God. Keep reading with me. Now to the second point, two trees in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is speaking in, in context here about false prophets, okay? So we should not broaden this more than it, um, than it ought to be in speaking gen generically about people, good versus bad, or Christian versus non-Christian. We know, um, any, it's intelligent to know that all Christians are capable of evil things, okay? History has shown us this. Non-Christians are capable of good things. History has shown us this, right? So we should not broaden this more than it needs to be, in, 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 um, but specifically that Jesus is talking about in this analogy to false prophets and how we are to test false prophets. The first thing he's saying in this is be on guard. Be on guard. He says, you will recognize them by the fruits. And this part is not, uh, is more spoken to the, his disciples than it was to the false prophets, than it was to the wolves. So there is an understanding that we must have that there will be false teachers. Apparently, there was already some in Jesus' setting. And if we look ahead, Paul warns the church, the elders at Ephesus very emphatically. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise 
and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. First Peter, or second Peter, he tells the church this, that there will be false teachers among you. It's emphatic. We can count on it. And so we have to be able to test. What does it look like to test? And let me first say this church, that as a pastor here at this um, church, as leadership here, and um, I speak for leadership, say that we will guard the doctrine of our faith. We will guard the gospel, the integrity of the gospel tightly. And we charge you with the same thing, to guard the doctrine of your faith. How do we determine true gospel from false gospel then? There are two tests that were presented here today. The first one is this, test the teaching. Is it feeding or dividing? A pastor's role in part is to feed the sheep, to nourish the sheep with good teaching, to give the sheep, lead them to pastures of green and let them eat. Is what is being fed nourishing or is it causing malnourishment? Is it causing division? Is it causing strife? Another way to ask it is, is the teaching amoralistic? We can look at the book of Jeremiah and God speaking through his prophet. He says this, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And here's what he says. They say continually to those who despise the word of God. So they're speaking to those who already are despising the word of God and they say, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say to them, no disaster shall come upon you. This is an amoral optimism. This is anti what the gospel says. That we can do whatever we want and it'll be fine. Everything will be okay. The other side of it is moralistic. So you may not find someone teaching an amoral type of teaching, but a moral type of teaching based on all that you do and what you can accomplish. And the things that you do will matter if, and according to your salvation. And uh, we have a good example of Paul speaking to the Galatians, where his whole argument, this whole book is, hey, as a people grafted into the faith, into the church, do not give in to the people that are trying to convince you that you need to be circumcised, that you need to follow these rules and do this and that. And in fact, he says it here in, in Galatians 5 verse 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. Strong words. And do not take it lightly that there are false gospels being teached and we must be on guard for those. So the first thing in testing is teaching. Test the teaching. And we can uh, um, 
remember Luther's words here. Luther was uh, Martin Luther. He's the one who nailed the 95 Thesis to the Catholic Church, the um, um, Roman Catholic Church. And even, even in that, think about that story where um, he stood against this large, extremely large entity of power. And he nailed up 95 questions and terms that he wanted to discuss. And he was persecuted for it. But in the end, in standing his ground with the word of God, it actually showed that the Catholic church was an error according to the church. And so Martin Luther, he, he pens these words to us. He says, cling to the pure word of God. Cling to the pure word of God. That's our charge. Second test is this, test the character and conduct. So it may not be evident right away that the teaching is false, but what might be evident is character and conduct. What comes from the man who is teaching? What is the fruit? A plant, the fruit of a plant will be determined by the root of, its, of the plant. Where are they rooted? And that may be shown where they're rooted in scripture by what fruit they bear. We think of the Beatitudes as the, as the teacher have poverty of spirit. Do they mourn their sin? Do they exemplify meekness? Is there a level of peacemaking? If not, if they're not in terms with what Jesus has laid out, then we should call into question their teaching. Simply put, if it looks, smells, feels like anything other than the Sermon on the Mount, run. If it looks like anything else than the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is giving, run. That is not of the Lord. Fruit can take time to grow. And I feel um, compelled to just say this because uh, for the sake of the church, that if there are any wolves in the place today, today, know this, that there is a promise that Jesus gives and is that your fruit will be recognized. That you will be found out. It may not be in this side of eternity, but in the next passage we see that there is nothing hidden from God's sight. In verse 21, we can read this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. These words of mine, this is really the subject of what Jesus is talking about. These words of mine. So there's plenty of analogies, and it's good analogy of um, us building on the right foundation, that foundation being Christ. We can find that a lot in scripture, and that's our cornerstone. But Jesus is not the foundation referred to here. 
The focus is not even on foundations, it's rather on the builders and their projects. It's important to note here that both parties hear Jesus' words. Whoever hears these words of mine. And then he gives two people. So the point is this. The point is what you do with Jesus' words. When we hear Jesus' words, what do you do with them? That's what Jesus is calling the question. Not the fact of whether you hear him or not, but when you do hear him, what do you do with him? We can either build a house correctly or incorrectly, and it all has to do with this. Our understanding as a builder, we can call this faith. Put this on the screen. Our tools that we have, we call this grace. And then what we do with them, obedience. Our understanding, our faith, the tools that we have, the grace of God, and then what do we do with that? And that is obedience. Now, before we look at how we can build a secure house, let us look at some ways that we um, rely upon false false sureties here. Jesus says here that not everyone who says, many will say, essentially saying that words are not enough. Okay, profession is important. Romans um, chapter 10, verses nine and, and 10 tells us this, right? That whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their lips um, that Jesus is Lord will be saved. Okay, so profession is important, but it is not enough in itself. We also must see here that the person speaking that Jesus is talking about is emphatic. Lord, Lord. Okay, when we see two words like this together, it brings emphasis to it. There's passion behind whoever is speaking here. And what Jesus is saying, your passion alone is not enough. And then lastly, we can see that prophecy was done, casting out demons was done, mighty works were done. Your passion might even lead to good results, but your results still will fall dramatically short. There are two things we can boil this down to in false sureties, and one is an assurance of our profession. So some people have a moment with God. They have an experience with God, and they rest everything upon that moment. And they become apathetic and lazy towards their Christian faith, yet they have confidence that what happened will be enough. The other end of it is that There are many who are expressive and boisterous in their love and their passion for the Lord. And they are zealous about giving this public profession of their love. But in private, there is no mourning of sin. Inwardly, there is no poverty of spirit. There is no repentance. This is a false surety. The second is a assurance of knowledge. I know many who are careful and meticulous about their theology and their doctrine, yet they have cold hearts and do not love their neighbors. They have ears to hear, but a heart too hard to be changed by the truth. And so to both of these, Jesus says, you are like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and your house that you had so much security in fell greatly. Because your assurance, your covering, and your refuge was in something other than what Christ has asked of you. 
And he says to you, I never knew you. These words drop on us like a bomb. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or iniquities of sin. You were known by design, but not in function. You were known by your creator, but not personally, not intimately. Jesus is asking for a relationship. There is a relationship level to this. We do not serve simply a God who is above and removed. I mean, this is essentially why we enter into Advent to remember that this God put on flesh to be like you and me, to walk what we have to walk, to experience what we have to experience so that we could know him. But yet often we get caught up in doing everything surrounding what knowing Christ looks like and not actually knowing Christ. Jesus' requirement of you and I is our hearts. This is the whole summary of the Sermon on the Mount. Every single point that he makes, he points it to the heart. I'm after your heart. I want your heart. I want you. I don't care what you do for me. I want you. But at the same moment, we cannot simply dismiss what we do in obedience to Christ because in doing so, we dismiss Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of sermon I give to you guys today. What matters is if I knew Christ. It doesn't matter. What matters is if I knew him at the end of the day. I may speak Jesus' words, but I am a sinner like you who hear them. They're not my words, and therefore in that sense, I must be obedient to his words because they are not my words. I must practice them. And practicing them is what building your house on a true foundation of faith looks like. James 2 verse 18 says, show me your faith without works. I will show you your faith from my works. Faith without works is dead. It is absolutely true that entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by faith, by grace through faith, but is also at the same time equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. This is the word that Jesus is speaking to us today. Faith results in obedience. So an honest question, why does God require faith? I mean, God could require anything. Why does God require faith from us? The answer is given to us in the verse that we read earlier, Ephesians 2, and in verse 9, he says, so that no one can boast. If you would... um, Turn to that passage again. We're going to read in just a second. Ephesians 2, 8. And so, take stock, church. What, am, what are you building? What am I building? Take stock of what you have. Your faith, your knowledge, what God has given you, your grace, the grace of God. And are you walking in obedience? As we enter into Sabbath in this next month, I ask us to do three things, to assess, devote, and delight. Assess, evaluate, devote, 
Enter into the things. Enter into prayer. Enter into Bible reading. Enter into communion with other people. Through these means, you will grow and you will be building your house upon the rock. The question that we used to ask ourselves a lot in our community group was this. In just assessing our own hearts, it was this question. Is Jesus real to you? Is Jesus real to you? And I don't mean just like figuratively speaking, like, you know, like just there's this some Jesus somewhere. I mean, is he real? I mean, is like what he did for you real? Does it have applicable, is it, is it applicable to your life? Does it bear any weight upon your decisions in life? Is it real? Evaluate, take stock during this time. We got to close. I know I'm going over a little bit. Final two verses here, verse 28 and 29. Read these with me. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus has the authority to speak the words he does because he is the eternal son of God. The thing we must realize is that one of these two choices leads to destruction. We cannot miss this. One of the two choices that Jesus has, he, le- he leaves it out plainly. Destruction for those traveling the broad way, fire burning up unproductive branches, categorical rejection of the disobedient, shattered house of a man who hears and does not obey. And so we might say, well, what kind of God is that? I don't want to serve a God who would just compel me to follow him out of fear. God uses all means, church, all means to save whom he will, even fear. It is not beneath him. He loves you too much. Again, Carson, he used this analogy of a man sleeping in a home and there was a flood coming. And he said, if I went and banged on the door to wake him up, desperately trying to get him to notice that the waters are rising. He would not blame me for waking him from his slumber. At the very least, he wouldn't accuse me of frightening him into safety because I'll frighten him. I'll scare him, whatever has to take, in order to effectively remove him from the house and into safety. Now, he says, if you're so attached to the home that you could not bear to leave it, or maybe you dismiss me as a fool and you just call me a liar, whatever the case may be, and you just want to remain oblivious, he said, while I tried to frighten you to safety, you would not accuse me of doing so. So we may dismiss hell, we may dismiss Jesus, therefore. We may love our sin and remain unrepentant, but do not presume that Jesus will deal lightly with it. That would be a grave mistake. The word of God has shown today that the, where the narrow gate is and how to find it. If you leave today without any reflection upon your own life, and taking any kind of stock, then I have not done a good job as a communicator. But regardless, 
The word of God has shown us the way to enter the narrow gate. So the question is, since it's no longer obscure, will you enter the narrow gate? And I want to close with this church. If you're in Ephesians, the band's going to sing it. And if you would read this passage with me, uh, Ephesians 2, and we're going to start just in verse 1 and read through 10. And I'd like to read this aloud together. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'll give you a minute to get there. And I want us to remember, as I said earlier, that this is not just hard. I mean, this is impossible. Lest we come to the end of this and it's like, man, I just got to do a little better. It's not what Jesus is saying. When we take communion today, I'll save it for when we get there, but we remember, man, that we're, we come to the table broken. This passage points us there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Let's read it aloud if you would. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Stand with me. As we sing these two songs, the band's going to lead us. And... I'm going to ask you to do this, church, to engage your heart. Engage your heart. Okay, Jesus does want your words. He does want your passion, but not without your hearts. So let's sing to him.